You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. All right, a little Christmas trivia. Let's see how good you are today. You ready? You're going to need to get close to somebody. If you're kind of sitting by yourself, this is a perfect opportunity to just kind of lean over for five seconds, snuggle up next to somebody. It'll be the most awkward thing in the world unless you're single, they're single, and then you can thank me and send me a Christmas card. All right, so... First thing, just to kind of warm up here, how do you pronounce the name of that little red flower that we see everywhere at Christmas time? Go ahead and tell the person next to you. If the answer is, I have no idea what that red flower is, you are probably a single male and I really want to help you here. If it weren't for my wife, I would have no idea how to pronounce this. So the word, how many of you say poinsettia? Okay, some of you grew up in Northeast Ohio like I did maybe. The word is poinsettia. I know I just blew your mind, right? Now here's the real question. Can anybody tell the person next to you, can you name what country the poinsettia actually came from originally? Go ahead and tell the person next to you. How many of you said Mexico? How many of you Googled it as I said it? <laughs> All right, you ready? All right, here's one, here's one. What is December the 26th called? Go ahead and tell the person next to you. <laughs> Your parents were holding now, weren't they? For those of you watching online, somebody yelled my birthday. (laughs) All right, it is called, anybody know, what is it? Boxing Day. When I first read that, I thought, I cannot think of any time in my life I watched boxing on the day after Christmas. That's because it has nothing to do with that. So ironically, uh, um, it's also called Stephen's Day if you're Catholic or have a Catholic background. Stephen was uh, one of the heroes of the faith. He was stoned to death. So when I saw it was called Boxing Day, I thought, well, that's ironic. Boxing Day has everything to do with the British holiday where apparently employers are intended to give boxes of gifts, a box with a gift in it, to their employees on the day after Christmas. Thankfully, the church's office will be closed. So my sorry for all the staff members. All right, all right, two more, two more. How many, no Googling. (laughs) Put your phones away. How many gifts are, don't yell it out loud, sorry, make a cheat. How many gifts are actually mentioned in the 12 days of Christmas? Go ahead. It is not 12, I'll help you. All right, this shouldn't be that hard. You took a guess, you're either right or you're wrong. How many of you said over 100? Over 200? Over 300? There are 364 gifts Mention, I think it's if you count every time you sing each day. Ha ha, I got you, didn't I? All right, last question, last question. Which Christian holiday is more important, Christmas or Easter? Go. (laughs) 
I heard a lot of which sounds more like Easter than Christmas, but I guess it could go either way. How many of you say Christmas? How many of you say Easter? How many of you brought guns? Just kidding. Don't raise your hand. I don't want to know. I do not want to know. We were on school property. I think that makes it illegal. Anyway, <laughs> it's been a fun debate over the years. Is it Christmas or is it Easter? If I just had to guess in this room, no math and Bible college, I'd say it was 60-40. 60% said Easter. 40% said Christmas. And the way the argument usually goes is there's no redemption without Easter. However, there's no Jesus without Christmas. I'll say this. Uh, one of my favorite gospel books, the book of John, never mentions the birth of Jesus Christ. I don't know if that makes an argument or not, but he spends the vast majority of his book talking about the crucifixion. So from John's perspective, Easter wins, which means I do too. So moving on. This is important for today. This is important for what I want to talk about in this series because I think where we are in much of America is we've boiled the faith down to Christmas and Easter. And, and, and I say that as a pastor jokingly because I know at Christmas and Easter we'll see more people um, who connect with Christ at this time of the year and at Easter than any other time of the year. And I think it's because everybody understands the weight of this thing. Everybody, yes, we look around and there's beautiful decorations and music playing everywhere and I love it. I'm eating it up. For once, I kid, my kids are at the age now where we can actually go out and decorate and we're not just in survival mode with three kids and then I let them help me decorate and every day I drive by, I'm glad at least there are lights up even though I think we're a little bit of the eyesore of the neighborhood. Whatever. My kids loved it. We had fun. I love this time of the year. I absolutely love it. I'm not knocking anybody connecting with Jesus at this time of the year. In fact, what I want to say is actually a twofold message today. I guess that's four if I do it like that. It's a twofold message today. What I want to say is, first of all, to the believer, and then also to those struggling with Jesus and struggling to figure out their faith. I want to have a conversation with both of you today. So there's going to be moments I'm going to look at the unbeliever, and there's going to be moments I'm going to look at the believer, and I just need you to stick with me. Believer, I'm going to ask you to reach into what I'm saying and make an application that I may or may not apply. So you need to ask yourself this question, what does all of this mean for me? I'm starting with this theory, this basic theory for this entire series, and that is simply this. We focus so much on the birth, and we focus so much on the death, burial, and resurrection that we miss the fact that Jesus came, lived among us, uh, became one of us, felt what we felt, experienced what we experienced so that he could understand just how difficult life was, and then he could point the way back to the Father. In fact, a guy named Hugh Halter wrote a fantastic book called Flesh, Bringing the Incarnation to Earth, and he says this, we love Jesus as a baby on Christmas, and Jesus risen from the grave on Easter, but somehow we miss Jesus, the man, the teacher, the sage, the rebel, the subversive king, the local hero, the neighborhood friend. And I want to take a look at that for a minute. So let's go ahead and take a look at John. We're going to start at John. Chapter 1, this is John's version of the Christmas story. He says, you know what, obviously if a guy dies on a cross, he has to be born. But let's go before he was born, all the way back to where he came from. Here's what it says in John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, without going really deep theology Bible, it took a whole Bible college class on John. You spent like three weeks studying this very concept, the word. I wrote a whole college paper on it, and I won't bore you with the details because you could care less what I have to think about it. Let me give you this short version. The word is Jesus. And the reason John picks 
the word word, which I know is confusing, but the reason he did that is pretty much a couple reasons. Number one, in Greek philosophy, uh, they would often use the word because it just communicates something when somebody wants to communicate something. It's kind of this ethereal philosophical idea. But more important than that, if you go all the way back into the Old Testament, we often see the prophets, the heroes of the faith, having a conversation with God. And we don't always understand what that means or what that looks like. So Moses actually talks to a burning bush and God speaks to him. Samuel, when he's a young boy, has dreams in the middle of the night, and finally, after like the third, the fourth time, he's told to just go and listen to God, and he finally says, here I am, and it says the Lord came and stood before him. What do we make of all these things? Well, we know this. When John is saying word, he's pointing backward to all of these Old Testament references about God speaking to his people. And what John is about to show you is that Jesus came so that God could again speak to people. But before you just simply hear a message, John wants you to understand the man. In the beginning, Jesus already existed. So however many days it took to get to where we are today, a very hot topic among Christians and scientists and people who don't believe in God at all, however many days that took, before the very first one ever began, Jesus already existed. And then he tells us he was with God and he was God. From the very opening of John's book, he wants you to know emphatically when you look at Jesus, you're not looking at a great teacher, you're not looking at a great prophet, You are not looking at a great king. You are not looking at simply a man who came to do great things, who was kind and generous. You are literally looking at God. Now, I know for some of you maybe visiting or watching online, that itself is mind-boggling. But this is the foundation of our faith. Before he was born, he was God, and then he became born. Take a look at what John says next, verse 4. And the word... Jesus gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. What John wants you to know, before you worry about whether when he dies or or, or when he was born and where he was born and, and how pregnant was Mary and how they get to Bethlehem and all those cool things we will talk about over the next few weeks, he wants you to know emphatically, everything that's ever been created came through his hands. Jesus' hands, the words, hands, he actually did it. And he's the one. Remember in Genesis chapter 1, God separated the light from the darkness. And once that light is birthed, that light began to give life to everything. This is why we don't find life in other planets in our solar system. There's either too much light or not enough light. And God separated and gave us light, his light. And as that light separated from darkness, things came alive in his presence. Have you ever noticed that things tend to die in darkness? Now, don't get me wrong. There are some things that actually thrive in the darkness, and let's just say you wouldn't really want to spend much time with them. They're usually funguses, molds, and all kinds of funky stuff. But for the most part, things die when they're in darkness, separated from the light. Now, John is using a metaphor. It's an analogy. It's just a comparison. However, it's real, isn't it? Because apart, apart from the light of Jesus Christ, everything dies. 
Isn't it interesting then how much of our community puts up lights on Christmas? There's been debate raging for years as to who owns Christmas. Do the Christians own Christmas? Uh, is Christmas really a pagan holiday that Christians seize and turn into the celebrating their Savior's birth? I mean, what's really going on here? There's been more ink spilled than I even care to talk about. But what I do believe is this. It gets really dark at this time of the year, and I hate it. And so everybody wants to light up the darkness, right? There's this natural drive in us for light to expel darkness. But what if you don't realize where the darkness comes from? Then a Christmas bulb or a candle is only serving as a facade to perhaps hide what you need the most. But Jesus came that light would actually shine in darkness. I don't know what it is about darkness. At least at a young age, it seems to instill fear and anxiety, doesn't it? My little boys, we protected them from watching anything scary. I mean anything scary at all. We were those helicopter parents, if you want to call us that. I'm okay with that. Hi, my name is Matt Nickerson. I've been a helicopter parent at times. We would watch what they were going to watch before they could watch it to protect them from being able to see things every Yucky, as we would call it, because their little brains didn't understand anything else. And yet, we would go up to bed at night and put them in a room that was dark, and they would freak out. And especially my middle son, but really all my boys, they would, he would talk about monsters. I'm like, you don't even know anything about monsters. I tried to make fun of it, like, not fun of him, but like, you mean like the cookie monster? No, Dad, I mean real monsters. You mean like Grover? No, Dad, stop it. Man, I had like four more Sesame Street characters. No, Dad, I mean real monsters. What are you afraid? Where have you even heard of this thing called a monster? Somehow our brains instinctively know that darkness is scary. Right? And then Jesus comes. And he shines a bright light in the darkness. 1 John 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. In that one little verse is the powerful hope of what we call the gospel. No matter how difficult life gets, no matter how painful or confusing it gets, no matter how much sorrow or grief you experience, no matter how confusing the future or even the past, there's a light shining in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. Have you ever noticed that? For those of you who'd never been spelunking or caving, it's the absence of absolute light. At least when you go in far enough into a cave, you will find there is no more light. you got to get away from the tunnel a ways, but when you get in far enough, there is literally no more light. There is nothing for your eyes to, quote, unquote, adjust to. You may have a cell phone, a flashlight, a candle, or something you bring in with you to help light up the cave. And it's amazing when that tiniest little light comes on in a cave, all of a sudden you can illuminate massive rooms with just one small light because that's what light does. Both in the analogy and in Jesus, light penetrates darkness. 
And I have this theory, again, talking to both groups at once. If you're in this room and you call yourself a believer, I have this theory that you've lost hope that your light can actually extinguish the darkness. Come on, just for the Christians for a moment here, though the, the, those struggling with faith may agree with me, just for the Christians, think for a minute, don't you sometimes feel hopeless when you turn on the news? Don't you go around before you go to bed at night and make sure your doors are locked? And there's this general fear and anxiety that exists, and what it does is it puts us on the defensive, making us afraid, concerned, anxious, but what if? And the problem is when we're driven by fear and driven by anxiety, as you hear me talk about off the church, the problem is we don't live as if the light actually penetrates the darkness and the darkness cannot extinguish it. I believe it's the NIV that says the darkness cannot overcome it. No matter how much you turn up the darkness, it can't put out the light. Go ahead, try turning up the darkness. You can't. Oh, but you can always turn up the light. You can always add more flashlights, more candles, more brightness, and expel more darkness. But what happens if those who have light actually try to hide it under a bushel? No. So those of you who don't know the inside joke, I just kind of dropped a little Sunday school song on everybody. But if we were to do that, what would happen to the world that we desperately want to see resurrected? Now let me talk to the unbeliever for a minute. See, as, as people who have not yet chosen God, you're somewhere in this path between hearing about him, pleasing grandma or mom and coming to church on this Sunday, or whatever it is. You're on this journey. You're just not sure yet. I've got a couple people I'm talking to right now, and they're at different stages of their walk with God. They've not received him yet. And some are asking very simple questions like, why should I believe and even trust this thing? And others are asking deeper, harder questions before they're able to make that jump. And I love that. I love that they're on this trajectory. So wherever you are, praise God you're here and asking some questions. There's no judgment or condemnation here. But let me just ask you a question. Do you go to bed at night sensing peace? Do you go to bed at night anxious at all? about whether or not you're going to have enough money to pay your bills or how your life is going to turn out or is it going to be meaningful or is tomorrow going to be full of more pain and sorrow or that doctor's thing that's coming down the road or whatever it is. See, the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is not that Christians don't have some of those same anxieties. Sometimes we make poor decisions, there's consequences. Sometimes other people hurt us by their decisions, and there's consequences. Sometimes life happens, and there's consequences. The difference for, between the believer and the unbeliever is we ultimately trust that God is going to take care of us. We don't have to be overly stressed or concerned. We know on the other side of our last breath, God will be waiting for us with open arms and say, well done, good and faithful, come into your master's happiness. But for those of you still struggling with God, I get, this is not trying to convince you. Just trying to get you to see the darkness around you and to feel it for just a moment. What if there was a way? What if there was a way out? What if it didn't have to be as dark as it sometimes feels? God's answer to that was something we call, in deep theological terms, the incarnation. The incarnation is where God literally became human and lived among us. 
See, think about that concept. We've talked about it so often so, for so long in churches, it, it, it just kind of escapes us. But if you think about it for a minute, just dwell on it for a minute, God left everything that was comfortable for him, and he came down here and moved into our neighborhood. So God left the comfort and the peace where he's worshiped and praised, he's got all the resources, food, whatever he needs, and he comes down here, and he lives as a poor baby to a poor family and a poor community. Nazareth was nowhere on the map. I mean, it'd be like, I'm not going to do it. One, one time I mentioned a place somewhere in Indiana, and I won't say I got any emails, but uh, anyway. It is like podunk nowhere, and they're a poor family, and they're the talk of the town because she got pregnant outside of wedlock, and everybody knew it. Now you're in a small town, judged at, looked sideways. In fact, when Jesus finally shows up on the scene, ready to begin his ministry, one of the guys who'd be his disciples even says, Nazareth? Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Like, come on, it's Nazareth. But God chose the most humble of circumstances to place his son. So that even when they end up in Bethlehem by God's providential hand, they don't have a place to be. You think if God was going to arrange for a census to move somebody from Nazareth to Bethlehem at the exact right time, do you think he could arrange a bed That wasn't God's intention. God's intention was that his son would come and experience life in its hardest sense so that everybody would be able to relate to him in his life. So that when we gaze upon him, we don't gaze upon God who is so otherly we can't even wrap our minds around him. He seems so much more wealthy than we can ever, you know, fathom. He seems so much more resourced than we can ever possibly get. Jesus is constantly blowing the minds of the disciples with the things he's able to do. When he speaks to the wind and the waves, they are baffled. Like, who is this man that could just say, be still, and it calms down? Because they don't even get a glimpse yet of who he really is. On the transfiguration, when he shows them himself in his glory, and he's bright as lightning. The disciples, the three who are there, are baffled. They're like, maybe we should build homes for him, you know? Like, uh, here's Moses, and, and here's Elijah. Wow, this is amazing. They cannot even wrap their heads around it because he took all that power and put it inside a little bitty living space. <laughs> My 80s movies references again. But he did this. So that every time we would look upon him and we see the power within him, rather than be absolutely terrified, we would draw near. Because see, it's one thing to respect power. Everybody respects power, right? Okay, maybe not everybody. There's a couple world leaders that maybe haven't learned that lesson. But for the most part, if you see somebody more powerful with more weapons or more whatever than you, there's a little bit of an intimidation factor, which will make you do one of two things, cower and run away, or follow out of maybe greed or self-protection, self-preservation mode. Jesus didn't want that. 
Jesus wasn't hungry for people who would follow him because they saw his power and wanted in on the action. Jesus didn't want people running away from him in fear. In fact, Jesus went out of his way to call out people, disciples, Pharisees, Sadducees, you name it, who would create barriers between him and other people. He was constantly tearing down what everybody else thought of him to get down to who he really was, which was God with us. So that every time we looked upon him, we could have confidence. He understands. Again, Hugh Holter makes this great little quote. The incarnation is what those inside and outside the Christian faith are looking for. And if every Jesus follower truly got it, it would fix every negative stereotype people have about Christians, Christianity, and the church. The incarnation of Jesus will give you proof that God understands how hard it is to be human. And it will help you see how to be human to the fullest. The Bible makes almost the exact same point in different words. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, the writer of Hebrews says this. So then, since we have a great high priest that's Jesus, who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. Do you hear the language? The writer of Hebrews, in case you don't know, I taught on this a few years ago. In, in Hebrews at the time, the people that he's writing to are considering walking away from Jesus because life is hard and it's painful and some are experiencing loss of family and loss of things like many of you at Christmas. Some of them are experiencing intense persecution to the degree that it's making them wonder if God has forgotten about them, that maybe this whole Jesus thing wasn't worth it in the first place because life is still hard. But remember, I told you, whether you believe in Jesus, you're still struggling with that, or whether you've given your life to Christ, whether for a year or many years, one thing we all have in common is life is still hard. And so the writer of Hebrews is encouraging us, saying he is our great high priest, but he understands us. He's experienced everything you've experienced in one capacity or another. You've been stabbed in the back by a friend, him too. You've been betrayed, him too. You've been cheated on, him too. You've been undercut, him too. Stolen from, yep, he's got that one. Mocked, done. Tempted to go against God's ways? Oh, yeah. And he never failed. And see, that last little part may make you say, well, see, how am I supposed to relate to a guy who's perfect? I have nothing in common with him. But see, that's the point of the Hebrews text. Jesus was perfect so that he could be your perfect sacrifice, so that Easter would have its power. But realize, realize, he's been where you've been. And he has unbelievable mercy for you. 
In fact, I would argue his mercy is far greater than you even now realize. That those times, that voice in your head that says, you know what, just quit. Just give up. If God loved you, he wouldn't let you go through fill in the blank. Those times that you say to yourself, you know what, God may have loved me at one point because I was doing good, but today, there's just no way today he could still love me because I did it again. Whatever it is. What this writer is telling us is that Jesus is merciful because he knows how hard it is to be human. Those of you grieving at Christmas time because you've lost a child or a parent or a friend, and you, at one hand, are, are experiencing great joy, and on the other hand, great pain and sorrow, do you realize that your heavenly Father lost his only son? He understands your pain. And he's not dismissive, he's not mocking, he's not pejorative, he's not condescending, he's not got the rah-rah, come on, sis, boom, ba, get it together, I'm still for you. No, he's just simply there. Because he knows. Recently had a conversation with a friend who very nonchalantly was telling me about their own childhood abuse at the hand of a family member. And as my heart welled up with sorrow and tears, I simply looked at them and said, I'm sorry. And they very quickly attacked back at me, don't be sorry. I don't need you to be sorry. Which told me there is a deep and profound wound here. And as I kept trying to bring it back up, what I kept trying to help them see and to understand was your heavenly father was not there judging you for everything that came in your life as a byproduct of that wound. He wept with you. And he weeps today because he understands just how hard it is. But now to the believer in the room. If Christmas for you is only about your children, your parents, your friends, then church, let me just say, you've missed the heart of your father. He did not simply come that you might have great family gatherings. Oh, don't get me wrong. That's been a part of Christmas since the very first one. Mary and Joseph go to Bethlehem to join family for a census, and what ends up being a celebration of life. But if you are thinking of this year only as your chance to get together with family and friends and celebrate at church, you're missing a phenomenal opportunity to display for others the love of Jesus Christ. Again, as Hugh Holter says in this wonderful book, I highly recommend it, though he will say plenty of things that will leave you offended and sending me emails wondering what I think of them. Here's what he says. If you want a safe faith, you will never really know God because he doesn't hang out in the shallow end very much. That's a nice little quote to get tattooed for the next one to add to your arm. And here's the thing I want you to know. Before Jesus showed up on the scene to show you the way back to the Father, this was always the plan. 
This was always the plan. In fact, we were told about it for years. We got it in little glimpses of, of lambs that would be sacrificed. We got it in glimpses of prophecies about women, virgins, who would have babies. We got it in little glimpses of kings who would rule. And we got it over and over and over in these little images so that when Jesus showed up, it would be like, wow, he's like that, and 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 he's like that. And one of them comes from the book of Isaiah. In chapter 9, verse 2, it says this, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. You will enlarge the nation of Israel, and its people will rejoice. They will rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, and like warriors dividing the plunder. For you will break the yoke of their slavery and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. You will break the oppressor's rod, just as you did when you destroyed the army of, the army of Midian. And some of you may come across those kinds of texts. You're like, I don't even know what to make of all of this. Well, it's quite simple. What I Isaiah is telling us in a prophetic voice hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus pops up on the scene is that when the Messiah comes, he's going to free you from darkness with light. And it'll be like in the day of Midian. You may not know that story. You should maybe read Judges chapter 6 through 9, I believe it is sometime. In that story, God calls a man, a simple man, a man who is afraid. And his name is Gideon. And he comes to him and says, great warrior, you're going to destroy the army who is oppressing you. And he's looking around going, great who? What? It can't be me. What are you talking about? And God leads this man on a journey of faith, of beginning to trust in him. And he builds an army, except the army's too big. And so he keeps whittling it down to 300-something people. And finally God says, okay, with this tiny clan of men, we're going to go whoop the enemy. And they do. And you look at it, you go, how in the world could that few of men beat that large trained army? These are farmers. These aren't trained army men. And God says, see, when I show up, it doesn't matter how deep and profound the darkness is. All I need is a glimmer of light. And that glimmer could set captives. In fact, John goes on in John chapter 1, verse 6. He says this. God sent a man, John the Baptist, perhaps John the baptizer, to tell about the light so that everyone might believe because of John's testimony. John himself was not the light. He was just a prophet. He was simply a witness to tell about the light. The one who is the true light, who gives light to most people that he likes, in case you're listening online later, it says he gives light to everyone. He was coming into the world. And he came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. Ah, but to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. Let's just stop before we get to verse 13. Leave that up there. How many of you have great plans for Christmas with your kids? You don't have to raise your hand. I already know the answer. How many of you are thinking and planning already? We're going to go to these places. We're going to do these things. I'm going to buy these gifts. I'm going to get these presents. 
You, most of you, know your kids really, really well. You're already thinking ahead about how you're going to do little things for them. Why? Because you love them. They are, when you look at them, this, 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 this glorious gift that God has given you. They reflect you back to you so often, not just physically, though that is sometimes true. They reflect you back to you in personality, which drives you bonkers sometimes too, but it makes you love them more, and you see them, and when they hurt, your heart hurts, and when they struggle, you get angry, and when people do things you feel like is unfair to them, you want justice to be done for your child because you love them. How much more so the perfect God of heaven how much more so when he looks at you, does he say, my child, my son, my daughter? And now I know, I know some of you have a profound wound from those people called your mom and dad. And so when you hear texts about God being a great father and you being his child, that brings you no peace. Because you think to yourself, not exactly thinking the mom dad thing is a good idea. But see, that's because you got a broken picture of who your heavenly father is. He is merciful. He is kind. He is generous. He is loving. He is interested in you. When I was a student pastor, I used to tell our teenagers, God cares if you have a bad hair day. And then I went to CIY, and one day a pastor got up, and I was with our teenagers, and he said, God could care less if you have a bad hair day. Start caring about more important things. And I thought, shut up. God cares if you have a bad hair day because he cares about you. If the Bible tells me that you are the, literally the apple of his eye, you are this focus. When he looks at you, he sees gloriousness. He knows every hair on your head. And while some of you make that easy for him, at the end of the day, it means he cares so intimately. Yes, it's a statement about the breadth of his knowledge and wisdom, but it's more a statement about how he cares for you, because you are children. This is why he's willing to send his son to live in humble circumstances, probably fighting and clawing as a family to survive and to make ends meet. He's well-trained by the time he becomes a man, and he's leading his disciples on a journey where they have no place to lay their head and many times no food to eat. He is well-versed in what it means to struggle. But God was willing to do that to his one and only son because he loves you. Recently, I sat with another friend and we just started talking. He's telling me about his own childhood story and all of these issues I'm touching on right now, he's heard me preach on more times than I could count. And I'm looking at him and I'm saying, God loves you. He's like, yeah, yeah, I get it, whatever. I'm like, no, listen, God loves you. He's like, this is gonna be that moment in like, the, the, the Goodwill hunting movie, you know, it's like, it's not your fault. I'm like, maybe if that's what I have to do. Like, some of you don't know, I'm not recommending that movie. I'm just saying, I'm looking, I'm like, God loves you. It's like, whatever. I'm like, stop. God loves you. Not because you performed perfect. Not because you've never made a mistake. Not because you did something amazing for him to look at. God loves you because to him, you are precious. And he wanted you to know it. So you wouldn't have to look up in the sky and say, well, God, if you really love me, write it in the sky. No, he put it in flesh. He left heaven. He came and dwelt among you. He suffered the way you suffered. So when you look at Jesus, you would know emphatically, without a question anymore, I love you. And if 
you look at Christmas as anything else, you are missing the story of God. The one who wants to lead you out of darkness and into light. That's why in verse 13, John says, those who become God's children are reborn. Not with physical birth, resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. Now what John is referring to really becomes real about two chapters later. In John chapter three, Jesus is talking to a man named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is really struggling to get who Jesus is. Like, if you're the Messiah, why don't you show off and whoop the Romans already? Like, what is going on? And they're having this conversation at night in the dark. Dark and light are a really important part of John's book if you read it. But so is water. And as they're talking, Jesus looks at Nicodemus and he says, it's really simple. A man cannot enter the kingdom of heaven unless he's born again. And Nicodemus, like many of us, he's a little bit literal. And he's like, ah, how's mama going to feel about that? Uh, how am I supposed to get back in there again? And Jesus says, you're a teacher. You're a teacher of the Jewish traditions. If you don't get this, how's anybody else supposed to get this? Nicodemus, come on. You know I don't mean to literally be reborn. I mean to spiritually be reborn of water and of spirit. To literally die to the old you and step into the new you. To leave the darkness behind and step into the light. Jesus goes on and he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him will not perish but will have everlasting life. What's interesting is we often stop at that passage of John 3.16, but John goes on and he says that Jesus says, I did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through me. Okay, believer and unbeliever, to the believer, Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. Believer, one of the reasons the world outside of here has a hard time believing the gospel that we teach is because what they hear and see from Christians is condemnation. They feel judged. Jesus says, I didn't come to judge. I didn't come to condemn. I made wine at a wedding, and I didn't go around and interview whether everybody was living a moral lifestyle or was going to get wasted that night. I healed lepers. I didn't stop to ask what happened. One time a woman caught in adultery was brought to me. I didn't judge her. I did not come to condemn the world, not the first time. Now, the second time, he goes on in John 3, and he says, now, the second time I'll be coming, I'm going to come in judgment. But see, the reason that everybody refuses to come into the light, for those who refuse to come into the light, is because they're afraid that the light will expose them. Go read John 3. I'm not making it up. 
afraid that the light when it shines upon me will actually leave me feeling exposed. But it's because I do not understand the merciful hand of my heavenly Father seen in Jesus, God and the flesh, that God didn't intend to expose me in a way that would hurt me or crush me or embarrass me or shame me. It's just the opposite. It's the hand of a loving Father who says, I'm shining light into the darkness that you might find the healing you find only in my presence. Come into your master's presence. Let me wrap my arms of protection and security around you and hold you close. Now, with that, I want to tell the believer in the room about something that's coming this month, and I want to make an invitation to those who've not yet received this. So this year on Christmas Eve and Christmas Eve Eve, because we're having both services, Saturday and Sunday, we are going to do a baptism celebration as a part of our Christmas services. And my hope is that it is an amazing experience for all of us. Now, maybe you've been attending Kingsway for a while, watching online, listening, and you've never actually taken the step to be baptized into Jesus Christ by immersion. Here's what we practice to teach here. I'm not gonna go real deep, but each week I'll go a little deeper. Simply this. While we respect and honor our brothers and sisters who've been sprinkled in other churches as a baby or even by choice, we believe the Bible teaches baptism by immersion. You go all the way under the water and all the way back up. It's the only version we believe the Bible teaches, so it's the only version we teach. It is actually one of our policies that in order to be a member, everybody has to be immersed. So we have some of you who come every week, you have been for years, and you were sprinkled, you don't want to get immersed. There's no judgment or condemnation come from this stage. I love you. You're welcome to keep coming, but all members have to be immersed. But I don't want you to go get immersed simply to become a member. I want you to consider being baptized if you never have, because it's exactly what Jesus was talking about when he talked about being born again. Because when I go down into the waters, I am entering a grave, so to speak. That's what the Bible calls it. And in that grave, the old me is dying. And when I come up out of the water, I'm actually coming alive to new life. I am joining with God in this promise of new life. It is the physical act re displaying or revealing what's going on already in my heart. I've committed in my heart by faith. God, I trust you to be my savior. I trust you to wash me clean. I trust you to move me from darkness into light. But now in baptism, I'm gonna show that I trust it with my body. And if you've never taken that step, you could do it, you could do it today. You don't have to wait. You could do it a week from now. You don't have to wait. Or you could join us on Christmas Eve and really mark this Christmas as a special celebration. I want to read you a passage to tell you how to respond. But in Romans chapter 6, so you don't think I'm making all this up, verse 3 and 4, it says this. Have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? For we were died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Death and rebirth all right there. So if this sounds like something you are interested in, you just want more information, you need more teaching, you're curious, here's one easy way to respond. You can simply pull out your cell phone, your tablet right now, and text the word baptism to 317-565-4911. Again, that's baptism. I feel like I'm making a commercial. Again, that's baptism at 317-565-4911. Don't wait. 
But seriously, don't wait. This is going to be an amazing celebration for all of us. Whether there's three people or 300 people, I have no idea. But what I want to do is I want to close our time praying. And as we go into the communion time, simply uh, preparing our hearts for what God's going to do in us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, oh God, I, uh, I thank you. I thank you for Jesus coming to show us how much you care. Father, I pray right now over these next few weeks as we talk more and more and more about your incarnation, your becoming man and dwelling among us, living the life uh, uh, that we live so that you could experience what we experience, we could relate with you and our pain and our suffering and our struggle, our temptation. God, we cry out to you because while we're not perfect, you are. And it's your perfection that infuses us and inspires us and it moves us. God, I pray for those who are going to visit Kingsway both today and online and over these next few weeks. God, may they hear the message of hope from Jesus and may they step into it. God, I pray for a huge gathering of people committing their lives to you this very Christmas, 2017, to mark this year, the end of this year, as the year that everything changes, that they're not going back, only forward. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.